Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. Alrighty, we are in session seven of our journey through the Bible together. This one covering the book of Exodus, probably one of the most venerated figures in all of the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, is uh, the star of this particular book, Moses. But before we go any further, let's bow our hearts really quickly for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time and this message, for the hope that it brings and for the foundation of our faith that you've set forth in these pages. So help us now to draw a better understanding of its message, of its contents, so that as we pursue becoming ever more shaped into the image of your Son, as we continue to grow day by day, Lord, use these pages to nourish us spiritually and to help us to better see both our place in your kingdom and to better understand your ways. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So Exodus is no less than the story of the birth of a nation. They go in as a family and they come out as a kingdom. So as we looked at this section of the Bible that we call the Torah, the first five books, the books of Moses, Genesis, of course, the book of the beginnings, Exodus, the redemption of the people of God and the forging of the nation. Uh, Leviticus, which details the laws and the customs both the civil law and the religious law, numbers, which is a misnomer. You may want to, it's a literal misnomer because that's not the actual name of the book in Hebrew. The name of the book in Hebrew, if you want to jot this down in your notes, is through the wilderness. It would be translated as through the wilderness. Now, when this book was being, trans, uh, was being translated into Greek in the Septuagint, it became known as the book of Numbers because of the censuses, plural, in the book. But in the Hebrew mindset, this is actually the history of the wilderness wanderings. It took, it took less than 40 days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took close to 40 years. It took 40 years <laughs> to get Egypt out of Israel. And that is actually the forging of the kingdom turning the people of Israel into the nation that would become the kingdom of the people of God. And of course, Deuteronomy, which is known as the book of the law, it is three sermons given by Moses to the people before his death. It is a summation, if you will, the closing arguments set forth by the rest of the Torah. So today we're in the book of Exodus, the redemption of the people of God. So this is building up on a lot of covenants. The difference between our religion and the religions, uh, uh, well, the other religions globally is that our God is not capricious. Our God does not renege on His promises. Our God actually delights in the making and keeping of promises to His children. And as He makes and as He keeps, the promises layer upon one another. The Abrahamic covenant, we learned about the, the reservation of the land of promise to the people of God, but more specifically for our purposes that all that through him, 
all the nations of the world would what? Would be blessed. The Mosaic Covenant can be summed up in basically two statements. If they remained faithful to the will of God, then the kingdom would prosper. If they were unfaithful, then the people would be dispersed from the land. And lastly, the Davidic Covenant that we'll cover later on in the books of Samuel, where God promises to David that the Messiah would come from him and that his family would reign over Judah perpetually. So, prior to the Exodus, just to get us back into review quickly what we'd covered from the previous session, Joseph was established as the prime minister of Egypt. Joseph, again, being the, the ninth son, if I remember correctly, of Israel himself. His brothers became reconciled to him. And the family moves from the land of Canaan into the land of Goshen in Egypt, up, well, lower Egypt, close to the, the Nile River Delta, um, to avoid the serious famine that had been going on throughout the Middle East at this time. Ephraim and Manasseh are adopted by and blessed by Israel, effectively making Joseph himself Israel's brother in order of the rank of the family. Now, Jacob, otherwise known as Israel at this point in time, prophesies over his sons before he dies. And I entreat you to take a look at those prophecies because they each will detail. It's, it's a mixture of both a blessing and a foretelling of the future tribes that will emerge from his sons. He is embalmed and buried in Canaan. And we're told in the book of Genesis that all of Egypt wept for him. All of Egypt, including Pharaoh, mourned for the loss of Israel. Now we're about to find out that's about to change, that attitude. Joseph promises not to seek revenge for what happened to him being sold into slavery. He dies and is embalmed, but before that happens, his brothers promise that eventually they would return his body to Canaan. I want you to note through all of Genesis that even though they have not taken possession of the land as a kingdom as they would eventually, there is a preciousness of the people of God towards the promised land. They regard the gift, they regard the promised land as nothing less than a gift ordained by God. In fact, as we'll see in the book of Ruth, um, Naomi attributes them leaving the land of promise to a betrayal of God. But moving on. Now, the years of slavery that are covered in the book of Exodus, 400 years they spent in servitude. There was the rise of a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, we read. In the book of Isaiah, we come to learn that one of the reasons behind this is because he's from a dynasty that originates not in Egypt, but in Assyria. He's an Assyrian by birth, and um, apparently this new dynasty is a reflection of what would later happen in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we meet King Herod, who himself, he, he's insecure about the land of Egypt because he himself is a foreigner ruling over foreigners. He is a member of a high-to-do family from another nation who comes in after the ending of one dynasty to establish another. And when Rome puts 
Herod, Antipas, well, excuse me, King Herod the Great, in as uh, the ruler over Israel years and years and years later. There's an eerie prophetic echo in this story because Herod the First, Herod the Great himself, is not Jewish. He's an Edomite. He is a descendant of Esau, a foreigner ruling over foreign people. But at any rate, the Pharaoh begins not only the slavery, but the persecution, the intensive persecution, I should say, of the people of Israel because he's fearful of a rebellion. He's fearful of a civil war. So the family, though, is blessed by God. It grows wealthy. It grows into a nation. Again, the dynasty comes into power that disregards Joseph and what he had done. Um, the Hebrews are enslaved officially and seen as a threat to the stability of the kingdom, the empire of Egypt. Egypt systematically murders all of the male children that it can get its hands on. Why? Because not only is this population control, but they are also eliminating potential soldiers. They're trying to strip Israel of its potential military might. And this is not the first time in history that repeated genocidal attempts will happen towards the people of God. Moses, who is a descendant of the tribe of Levi, is rescued. This is the scene where his, his birth mother uh, prepares a basket with pitch and sends him downriver until he is taken out of the river. That's what Moses, the word actually means, from the water. And is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter into the royal family. He is educated in their ways, their customs, and their military strategy. He escapes in this one episode we read that uh, there is an oppressive Egyptian who is harming uh, some Hebrew slaves. Moses, knowing that he's a Hebrew himself, kills the Egyptian and then has to run out of Egypt, going into self-exile, dwelling in the land of Midian for 40 years to avoid the charge of murder. Now, when they're wandering through the wilderness, they're wandering through Midian. So as he goes into this land, as he marries the daughter of Jethro, the Midianite priest, as he becomes a shepherd, this is all training for what he would eventually do when he encounters the burning bush and rescues the people of Israel. Incidentally, he is called by God to be Israel's lawgiver, a prophet, unique in the halls of the prophets. He's unique for two reasons. Number one, God does not speak to him necessarily through prophetic visions and dreams, but he speaks to him directly. Moses is blessed to have heard the audible voice of God. In the midst of the burning bush, the burning bush itself is, a, is, is symbolism uh, prophetically because the acacia bush, the thorn bush of the desert, bursts into flames but is not consumed. Anything that fire is prophetic for judgment. An object not being consumed by fire means that it's passing through judgment. It's an image of grace. The burning bush, even in the rabbinical texts, is an image symbolic of grace. He is called to, again to be Israel's lawgiver. That's where the Ten Commandments come in and later on the full books of the 
the covenant and the book of Deuteronomy, his final sermons. And of course, he pronounces God's judgment on Egypt that comes about in the form of the plagues. Later on, he institutes both the Passover sacrifice and the festival, which is a perpetual festival. Please mark that down in your notes that this is to be observed by the people of Israel perpetually. This is part of how they keep their heritage alive, how they instruct their children in Torah through the festivals, through the times and the seasons. The Jewish catechism is often said is their calendar. So every time they celebrate a festival, every time they celebrate a feast day, every time that they go to temple and there's a commemorative event going on, it is them being taught about their history, their heritage, about God. Moses leads the people out of bondage through the Exodus event. He proclaims the law and he, as a prophet, anoints and establishes, or rather, God establishes, but he anoints and ordains the Aaronic priesthood. Every Levite, every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest. Only the descendants of Aaron, brother of Moses, are eligible to serve as priests. So, just taking an outline of the book in order. First, we have, of course, the redemption of the people of God from chapters 1 through 18. The prologue where Moses gives us the historic background of both himself and the people of Israel post-Genesis. There is the judgment upon uh, Egypt, the plagues. There's the observance of the first Passover, and of course, there's the crossing of the Red Sea. In what you could call part two of the book, the giving of the Torah, there is the encounter in Mount Sinai where they see God. In fact, in Arabia, there is a mountain uh, to the east of the Sinai Peninsula, Jabal al-Az, which they now think, after a lot of, of, of uh, modern scholarship, is actually Mount Sinai because they have found more archaeological evidence there, plus the fact that they found that the top of the mountain was vulcanized from the outside in. There is scarring on the rock, heat scarring on the rock from the outside heading into the mountain, not the other way around. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, you have the encounter at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up for 40 days and 40 nights in fasting and has the time with God where he himself is instructed in the things of God and receives the tablets on which God himself has carved the Ten Commandments. Moses goes down from the mountain after spending all that time with God, and he is not a happy prophet. Because all of a sudden, the people of Israel have decided that they're not going to wait on God anymore. They're going to do things on their own timing instead of God's timing, and they're going to fashion gods for themselves. So Moses come down, uh, comes down, he has the tablets, he is radiating the glory of God because he's spent so much time in the presence of the Shekinah. And he gets so angry at the people that what does he do with the tablets of the Ten Commandments? He throws them down and shatters them. And he confronts Aaron, his own brother, the guy that's been through all this with him. In fact, the one, the, the one derogatory thing that was said about Cecil B. DeMille's movie about the Ten Commandments was they thought that it was too unrealistic that the people of God should turn their backs on God so quickly. 
How's that for interesting? Aaron, what are you doing? And he's like, well, the people just gave me all of these, this, all of the jewelry and it cast into the fire and boom, this calf just came out. Is effectively what he says. Making excuses. And, and God gets so infuriated in another episode. That, uh, well, I'll, I'll save that for when it happens. That'll be next session. Anyway, um, but there's this time when Moses actually has to talk God down. We, well, he doesn't, there's a whole thing about that. But he talks God down from wanting to just obliterate Israel and start fresh with Moses and his descendants. And Moses has the, if you will, chutzpah to confront God and say, remember your promises. Remember that should you do that, that all the people of the world will think that God has turned His back on His promises, turned His back on the people of Israel. But we'll cover that later. Anyway, so there is the giving of the law and the rededication of the people. Lastly, if you will, there is also the building and the institution of the tabernacle. Now, when Moses came down from the mountain the second time after carving himself from the voice of God, he should have also come down with a bunch of blueprints because not only did he come down with God's law, but he also came down with very exquisitely detailed instructions on how to build this reliquary that we call the Ark of the Covenant, the uh, mercy seat, which functionally acts as its lid. It sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant, even though they are treated incidentally as two separate items in Scripture. Mark that down. When talking about the symbolism later on in the prophecies of the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, they are always listed, they're always dealt with separately, even though they look like the same thing. But anyway, the temple furnishings, the priesthood is ordained. I'm getting them backwards, my apologies. And all this comes to pass where God um, enables certain craftsmen with gifts of the Holy Spirit in craftsmanship. Even the clothing of the priests uh, is, is patterned and manufactured. Now, let's take a look at the plagues of Egypt really quickly. Two things I want you to, to take from this. There are ten plagues. Oftentimes, ten is, is, it has a significance of seven plus three. Seven things of men, three things of God. Now, um, the plagues of Egypt, we have a bad habit of thinking we're just God attacking Egypt as a nation. But really and truthfully, when you read in Scripture, you also find out that God was not just judging the Egyptians themselves. He was also judging the Egyptian pantheon. He was attacking the belief in false gods and idols. The water to blood, the Nile is of course the historic source of Egypt and its power. And that was a direct confrontation against Osiris, Iris, and a bunch of others that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. The, uh, the, there's also the plague of frogs, the plague of sandflies, lice. Interesting thing about the scarabs that I want to point out too. Scarabs in Egyptian mythology are symbolic for creation. And there are many Egyptologists that believe that the reason that's the case is when an animal, well leaves droppings, that the scarabs, which are Egyptian dung beetles, 
just seemed to appear out of nowhere. Effectively thinking that from death comes life. So they have that significance. But uh, God proves that He is God and sends swarms of the things as an attack against Egypt. Of course, there is the plague on the livestock, the plague of boils, the plague of hail and fire from the sky, locusts, darkness that you can feel. This is not mere absence of light. When the Bible describes the plague of darkness, it says that it is darkness that has a tangible quality to it. It can be felt. The highest god in the Egyptian pantheon is Ra, the Egyptian summon god, which is symbolized by, more often than not by a disc. Ra's inability to, plague, to protect the Egyptians from the god of Israel is God's judgment against the highest good as they see in their pantheon. And of course, there's the death of the firstborn. Now, there are some of us that are victims of our Sunday school coloring books that believe that this particular plague was a knee-jerk reaction of God brought about because of the stubbornness of Pharaoh, when in fact, God had predetermined already, back in Exodus 4, that this was going to be the case, that this would happen. It was a foregone conclusion. And the death of the firstborn is a judgment on the God kings of Egypt. Rome was not the first nation to declare its emperors to be divine. Egypt was doing that long beforehand. So the death of the firstborn was also seen as a judgment upon Pharaoh and his dynasty. Now let's get to the Passover itself. The Passover was a meal celebrated and is very much ingrained with Israel's birth and identity nationally and ethnically. Many of the themes include renewal or new beginnings, and that's symbolized because after this particular date, after the first Passover, the first month and the first day of the Israeli year was changed. Originally, the first month was Tishri, uh, which corresponds, if I remember correctly, to about our September. Yom, uh, the Feast of Trumpets, if I remember correctly, um, is the celebration of, of this civil calendar. But the religious calendar now begins on Nisan. Nisan, which happens in the springtime. And the, that is, of course, when Passover begins. Uh, another prophetic meaning behind Passover is, of course, liberty, which is redemption out of bondage. Notice it's not revolution. It's not war that leads to bondage. It's, God, it's the work of God purchasing the people out of their bondage. Does that sound familiar? Because a lot of these prophetic themes should line up with another thing that is also the highest form of Christian fellowship, which we'll get on to later. Of course, there is grace which is delivered through the sacrifice of blood, not ethnicity. If you were an Egyptian that found yourself in a Jewish home that had been wiped with the blood on the lintel of the doors, 
you would be spared. If you were a Hebrew slave who disobeyed the instructions of the prophet and did not line the lentils of your door with the blood of the sacrifice, then you would the, the, death, the, the death angel, excuse me, would visit your home. It was the blood that was the sign of grace. It was the blood that covered against death. Fellowship, of course, it has always been celebrated through the act of a feast. And of course, prophetically, we hear the voice of John the Baptist say in the first excuse me, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is John the Baptist linking that sacrifice with the person of Christ. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So, Pharaoh, we hear, broke his word and sent his charioteers after the Israelites. Israel was met with their backs to the Red Sea, which is a position that militarily you do not want to find yourself in. The Shekinah glory of God as a pillar of fire blocked the onward, the, the oncoming Egyptian army. Israel was able to cross through the breath of God, through through the acts of God parting the Red Sea, they were able to cross on what the Bible describes as dry land. And then once the last Israelite had come and the charioteers decided to follow, God destroys the military of the most powerful nation on earth, humbling it, bringing it to its knees. So this is the Egyptian empires that stood at that time. You'll notice that it not only covers the, the Nile River basin up there, but it also has absorbed Nubia, the Cushites, and the borders of what would later on become Ethiopia. Now Goshen, the place where the Israelites were at the time, that's marked by those green arrows, is at the very uh, southern end of the, dial the Nile River Delta the most fertile ground in all of Egypt. Now, this is... The Exodus route, I'll just say this, the Exodus route has been a point of conjecture for many years. Um, I, I will do my best to try to explain a couple of things and let you draw your own conclusions. But I'm the first green arrow starts where they are, um, around the area of the district of Ramesses and, and all of that. And finally, uh, they go into the Arabian Peninsula. They cross the uh, Gulf of Agaba, what we call the Red Sea as well, and enter into Arabia where Jabal Allah's, a.k.a. Mount Sinai, is located. Now, there's another site that is a traditional site of Mount Sinai. Unfortunately, it doesn't hold nearly the archaeological weight um, that Jabal Allah's does. It's located there on the Sinai Peninsula. Paul supposedly visited it during his wilderness journeys himself, and of course he describes uh, his journey as going to Arabia, not to Egypt. But anyway, that second green arrow, if we focus in on it a little bit more, 
uh, those are the Straits of Tehran, under which supposedly lies a mountain ridge system which could be used, it's a submerged land bridge, which is why we now think that that may have been the path of the Israelites, basically skirting around the western side of the Sinai Peninsula there, crossing the strait and heading into Arabia and then going north. But again, the traditional view of the Exodus journey is what's currently on your screen. I'll mention this too. That first green arrow up there is pointing to a lake in Egypt that is known as, or was at that point in time, known as the Reed Sea. The Reed Sea only goes from three feet to about five feet deep at any one given time. And it has been conjectured for many years that instead of the Red Sea, because of mistranslation with the Septuagint and so forth, they were actually talking about the Reed Sea. Now, if you believe the, the Red Sea, of course, that's the, the view that I hold, uh, both miracles hold weight in your heart. If you believe it was the Reed Sea, uh, there may be actually a greater miracle involved there because if it was, in fact, that particular point of real, real estate, that would mean that the entire chariot core of Egypt drowned in three feet of water. Take your pick. Anyway, when you continue to read through the Bible, the name of Egypt, particularly in Revelation, is brought up in a symbolic capacity. In a word, Egypt prophetically means worldliness, a desire for strength through, through monetary wealth and military might. It is a kingdom ruled through despotism, a kingdom that seeks to totally subjugate its people. And of course, by extension, that means that Pharaoh is symbolically presented as the devil. It can also stand for earthly wisdom and idolatry. Its core values were riches, ambition, pride, and pleasure. And when it saw something that it determined as evil, write this down. It attempted to fight evil with evil. We will see that theme come back to us in the book of Revelation when the entire world outside of the will of God attempts to fight what it conceives as evil with more evil. It persecuted the people of God, which the world itself does, but it was eventually overthrown by divine judgment. So, Exodus itself in prophetic language. When you get to the books of the prophet, and occasionally in the first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, God will title himself. Thus saith the Lord thy God, who brought thee forth from the land of Egypt, or something along those lines. If God mentions that he brought plagues upon Egypt, or something along those lines, He's talking in terms of being a judge or bringing of judgment. If he mentions something along the lines of covering in, great, uh, covering in blood, of course, that is symbolic of grace or redemption. If he, mean, if he says something about bringing them forth from the Red Sea, he's trying to describe his power and might. 
if he mentions the pillar of fire by day, and the, excuse me, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, he's referring more often than not to him being a God that guides. If he mentions the manna, water from a rock, the giving of the law and so forth, he is talking about both his righteousness and fulfilling his promises excuse me, and being a God of provision. If he mentions that he is the God of the covenants, he is talking about faithfulness, both his own faithfulness and more often than not, our lack of it. And if he brings forth that he is the Lord of the tabernacle or, or something along those lines, then he is talking about being in relationship with his people, condescending to our level. In fact, what's interesting is if you do a deep dive in John chapter 1, uh, the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. So, this is also the point at which we start to look at the law of Israel. Now, if you want to, you can divide the law into three things. And again, this is one of the times that I really wish the Bible was set up in topical order so that it could make things a lot easier to understand. Because since the time of the rabbis, there is an understanding that there is not just the law, but there are subdivisions within the law. There is the moral law, what is more often than not called the commandments, which center on ethical living. There is the social law, or the judgments, which talk about interpersonal interactions. We might refer to that as the tort law. There's also, within that segment of the law, care for the marginalized and the poor. There's also the distinctiveness of the nation, the national and religious law, which we might call the ordinances. Again, those are the things that made Israel a unique people from among the nations of the world not just in its custom, but also in its worship and its prescription of sacrifices. You really need to know that in today's time. When you confront someone that does not know the difference between right and wrong and, the, and that tries to, to put doubt in your mind about the uh, commandments against homosexuality being equivalent to the commandments of someone having a garment made of two different types of cloth, it's not the same type of law. Not only that, but there is still an ethic that we need to understand behind the one that we think we can disregard. I'll get into more about that in just a second. So, God does something very interesting when he writes the books of the law, when he writes the Pentateuch, or the Torah. He starts out with a summary statement, and then it gets broader and broader and broader and broader and broader. But the summary statement we can call the Ten Commandments. And I am trusting and hoping that your Sunday school teachers of ages past went over this with you so that hopefully you know it. But there are a couple of things that I want to go over with really quickly. First of all, those first, four those first three commandments deal with a person's relationship with God. The last seven 
deal with a person's relationship with their fellow creations. Now, the ones with the... I don't know that I explained that correct. Let me go back. The commandments with the star or the asterisk exclusively relate to someone's relationship with God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It has two stars next to it because it is both a commandment about humanity and about the Holy One of Israel. So it, it, it's a pivot point, if you will. I'm the Lord thy God. They shall have no gods before me. One of the things that we really need to know about that commandment is that God is a jealous God, meaning not that he wants something that he's not entitled to, but he is zealous, might be a better word, he is zealous for that which he is entitled to. And if we as believers, as the people of God, put something before him, he will do whatever it takes to knock that something down. If we worship something in his place, including something materialistic that may at one point in time have been a gift of his, if we start to worship that in place of God, he will get rid of that for us so that we'll have no choice but to go back to him. There are many churches right now struggling because they worship the building instead of worshiping God. And God will not take kindly to being second best. No graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That is not just about your vocabulary. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain is not just about cursing, even though it is about respecting his name in that way. There is also the fact that if you take the name of God, it's about ambassadorship. If you take the name of God, you have a duty and a responsibility to proclaim him accurately. So it's not just about the words that come out of your mouth, but it's also about your conduct, your conversation, and your character. If you go in Christ's name, you represent Christ well. Otherwise, you take his name in vain. Um, honor thy father. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. No matter when you take a day of rest, take a day of rest. Remember what Jesus himself said. God created, God didn't create man for the Sabbath day. He created the Sabbath day for man. I know I've just butchered that quote, but you get the idea. Honor thy father, thy mother with the promise so thy days may be long upon the earth. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal. I want you to notice also that private property is instituted in the Ten Commandments. Respect someone else's property. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. Anyway, moving on. Paul actually gives us instruction about the law and its place for a New Testament Christian, which is what we'll talk a little bit about here. Um, in Romans 10.4, Paul writes to us, Christ is the culmination, this is the NIV translation, it says end in other translations, of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, this is one of those verses that is taken by some to mean that since we are no longer by the law, we can do everything that we want to and get away from it because we don't have a checklist of what is right and what is wrong. If we instinctively do it, then it must automatically be correct. 
This is more of the name it and claim it, grab it and blab it types. But what I want you to understand, all right, that word in particular, telos. If you've ever said under a sermon of one of mine, you could probably hear another word that Christ said from the cross in there to telestai. Telos means to end, to, to culminate, or to complete. It comes from the root word telo, which means to set out for a definite point or a goal, meaning that you're on a journey and you've reached telo at the end of that journey. According to Strom's definitions, it's the point aimed at a limit by implication. It's the conclusion of an act or state. So when Paul says that Christ has ended the law, he means that through him, the law has been fulfilled and its purpose has been satisfied. So what was the purpose of the law in the first place? Well, Paul goes kind of exhaustively in Romans chapter 7 and 8 to tell us that. Number one, in 7-7, it tells us that it was meant to expose sin, and that's actually something that we can learn from today. But not only that, he gives us the curious phrase that it was also in, to incite people to sin more, to put a mirror up against human nature to say, you are fallen. To also expose the fact that the sin nature cannot be reformed. It must be replaced. Let me say that again. Human nature begins in sin. It cannot on its own be reformed. It must be replaced. The law also came about to expose the ineffectiveness of self-reliance. You cannot work yourself into heaven. You cannot work your way into righteousness. Works will not save nor satisfy the requirements of God. That's where grace comes in. It was also meant to drive us to a total reliance on the Holy Spirit of God. So the law and the Christian. The law was fulfilled through the life and the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrificial system was ended. The code and its penalties as written was ended. The national distinctives were broken down so that we could become a religion of all peoples, all languages, all nations. So the covenant has been fulfilled and its requirements have passed, but there still is a usefulness. Paul writes, what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. What the law couldn't do, grace accomplished. He condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Holy Spirit. So we're under a new covenant. The old covenant was all about outward commands. The new covenant is about inward convictions. Thy word have I hid in my heart. I will take their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. Outward commands versus an inward conviction. The law was about external works versus an internal transformation that conforms us to the word of God through the image of Christ. The law gives us condemning penalties. Grace, the new covenant gives us a grace that leads to everlasting life. So what can the Christian gain by studying the Old Testament? What can we learn from the Torah, from the law? First of all, and I need you to understand this, pay attention to New Testament scriptures uh, through either the voice of Christ or through the epistles of the apostles. 
That can be a tongue twister. Pay attention to the scriptures of the New Testament where the ethics behind the law are explained and where sins are enumerated. And a big example of that is the writings of Paul in Romans chapter 1, where he gives a huge list of actions that are an indication of a reprobate mind because that person has rejected God. So, the law can teach the Christian about the ethics of righteousness. We can hold a mirror up to ourselves to say, okay, the decisions that I make, are they conform to the wants and the desires that I know are part of God's makeup, are part of His thought process? To instruct me on the ethics of righteousness through the section of the law that we would call the commandments. To give me a background for understanding missions. Missions being our ministry to the suffering, our ministry to the world. Now what do I mean by that? In the law of the judgments, if you will, part of that is for the traveler and for the destitute, uh, if you reap a field, you can only go through that field one time. And you cannot reap anything that grows in the corners of the field. Why? Here's the ethic behind that law. It's so the destitute and the traveler will be able to work for themselves to gain provision. Let me say that again. That law, leave your corners and only reap once, that is impractical now and the word of that law is no longer enforced. But the ethic behind that law is provide for the poor. Help the traveler. But do so in such a way that you allow them to work for themselves to get out of poverty rather than remaining in cyclical destitution. Do you understand where I'm coming from? Even in the case of Ruth, when Boaz first met her and heard her story and his heart felt for her, he didn't just hand her barley. He told his men, yeah, drop a few more things. Make sure that you don't necessarily reap quite effectively. Let some things fall down so that she can come by and glean them up. Provide in such a way that you don't provide toxic charity, but allow them to have the dignity of work in such a way that elevates them back to prosperity. It's also there so that we can better understand the way the Old Testament worship points to Christ. Jesus himself said, the volume of the book is written of me. So when he raises the piece of matzah that represents the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, and he says, this is my body broken for you, what is he saying? I am now your Passover sacrifice. I am being put on the cross so that you may be free. My life is forfeit so that you may live to better understand the way that the Old Testament points to the New. So the Old Testament can also be a mirror for sanctification in this way. Is our decision-making, the things that we're tolerant about, the things we may grow intolerant about, is it conforming to the wants and desires of God? Is, are our hearts being broken for the things that we know will break God's? Speaking of God himself, Jesus says, 
I'm the same. No, I'm misquoting, but um, I am the same. To, God is the same today as He was yesterday, and will be what? Forevermore. So sin is still sin. Righteousness is still righteousness, and God not only cannot allow sin into His presence, but God is always righteous. So part of the ethics in the Old Testament that we can study is to hold it up to our own lives, our own decision-making, our own thought process, knowing that Christ lived them out perfectly and decide whether or whether not we are being conformed to that image or if there's something that we need to work on. It's a test for loving our neighbor. Do we provide for others? Do we help others out of poverty? Or do we simply belittle them, marginalize them, and try to keep those who are down, down? And another reason that we can look to the Old Testament and to those who lived out their life of righteousness is to gain examples of faithful devotion to God. For we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. There's people cheering us on in an arena. So, for discussion, make sure that you keep sharing your reading and journal highlights with your small groups. Do not stop meeting in groups. As iron sharpens iron, so we sharpen each other. Consider, along with your Bible reading for this coming week, what is the difference between ethical living and legalism? Let me repeat that. What is the difference between ethical living and legalism? Because there is a huge, profound difference. What is the significance of the priesthood in the Old Testament? What is the significance of the priesthood now? Because we do have a priesthood. And by now you should know who those priests are. Lastly, what is the significance of the tabernacle? or later the temple, both then and now. And again, the temple of then is not the temple of now. Which if you were a good Hylonian and have been part of my sermons for the last little bit, we've already taught about this. But what is the significance of the priesthood in that time? What is it at this time? How are they the same? How are they different? What is the significance of the temp, uh, tabernacle immediately at that point in time versus the temple of today's time? So with that, we, have, we conclude Exodus and we move into, hopefully, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The good thing about these three books is that they're very repetitive. There is a lot of good details in there that we'll be getting into. But what I want you to look particularly close to, what are the ethics behind the commandments of God? They're not necessarily mentioned in chronological order. The reason I mean that, uh, say that, is that as you read through Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, more often than not, you'll find a law being mentioned and enumerated, and then you'll see an episode of the wandering children of Israel's history that fits directly in to that law that was just proclaimed. This was not a knee-jerk reaction. I believe that it's Moses giving a commentary of his own experiences. But I will leave the rest of that uh, interpretation up to you. Any questions or comments before we conclude this evening?
That was day and night. Total darkness. The question was, uh, the, the plague of darkness, was that both day and night? Yes, that was a total coverage that hit everywhere except for the area of Goshen where the Hebrews were laying, uh, were residing, excuse me. And again, what I find so unique about this is it wasn't just an absence of light. It was as though they were surrounded by a, by a tangible emptiness. I don't know how else to describe it because the Bible, if memory serves, it also inflicted pain upon uh, the Egyptians. But at any rate, light was not present. Any other questions? If not, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And we thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to draw wisdom and strength from it. To remember the story of the heroes of the past. To celebrate their dedication. To learn from their mistakes. To go forward with their courage. Help us to be the people that you, need, that you have called us to be today. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you and God bless you.